0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, Chapter 3, And I have two texts that I want to read tonight, so if you'll find John chapter 3 and put your finger there, and then also find in the Old Testament the book of Numbers chapter 21. And uh, we are preparing to take the Lord's Supper tonight, and what I'd like to do is to use the message this evening to lead us into that. Uh, We have a, a beautiful picture, an emblem of the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper, And in these scriptures that we're going to read, we have um, another picture of the death of Christ that many of us would not think is beautiful at all. I've titled the message tonight, An Unusual Picture of the Cross. And I think that anyone who reads these texts would have to say that this is one of the strangest types of the cross that we find in the Bible. But as strange as it is, It's actually the only Old Testament reference that Jesus makes where he specifically relates the story to the type of his own death at Calvary. Now, we do know that there are other types of cross that we find in the Scriptures, but this one stands out because this one is in the Lord's own words where he applies this to himself. Now, first we're going to read the words of Jesus from the book of John, and then we're going to go to the book of Numbers to see where Jesus takes this reference And so, first of all, from John, beginning in verse number 14, uh, this is part of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And in this conversation, uh, Jesus probed the understanding of Nicodemus, and it was clear that although Nicodemus was a member of the esteemed group called the Sanhedrin, yet he was like all the rest that were in that group that had a very poor understanding of how the Old Testament pictures Jesus as the Messiah Lord. Now, if you look in John chapter 3 and verse number 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now if you'll turn to the book of Numbers in chapter 21, we'll start here at verse number 4. Matthew 21 verse number 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Well, this is truly an unusual picture of the cross, and Nicodemus didn 't understand it and to be fair to him, uh, neither could he understand it until the Lord gave him the key to understanding this passage in the old testament and likewise, there are also many people in our time who have read the New Testament and the Old Testament, and they still don 't know what is this story really all about. Uh, why, Why do we have a serpent that's mentioned in the Old Testament? Why a snake? And what are the characteristics of that that make it like the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, tonight in the course of the message, I hope to develop that thought among some others. And I want to show you what he meant, what Jesus meant when he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, as we've just seen... Jesus, of course, drew that picture from the story of Moses and the children of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, Paul told us why that we need to read the Old Testament. He said that the Old Testament has stories in it that are given to us for examples, that they teach us lessons... And when those lessons, especially I should say, when those lessons concern anything that has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, and if they should happen to talk about his cross, then surely we'd want to understand what those lessons mean. Now the wilderness wanderings are actually used many times as examples for Christians today. And in the text of 1 Corinthians where Paul said, this is Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, in that text where he said that these things are examples, he specifically mentioned these serpents here in Numbers chapter 21. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9, Paul wrote, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now that's really an interesting statement. Paul said that we should not tempt Christ. That means we shouldn't provoke him. We shouldn't try his patience as Israel did. And the interesting part about that is when we look into the Old Testament, we very clearly understand that it's talking about the the Israelites tempting or provoking God or trying his patience. And here is one of those places in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that shows us that Jesus is God. He's the God of the Old Testament. He is Jehovah because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 that in that story, what they did was to tempt Christ. And that shows us that he is the God of the Old Testament. Well, there are some thoughts that I'd like to draw from this that show us what Paul meant when he said these things are examples. The wilderness wanderings are example of what we face living in this world. And these things that we read here speak to the condition of man and why that Christ must be lifted up on the cross of Calvary. Now first tonight, what I'd like to talk to you about is the difficulty in the way to heaven. Now in Numbers 21, the children of Israel had nearly completed 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Within just a few months of the time that we're reading here, they would reach the border of the promised land and they would at that point, be able to cross over the Jordan River and to begin the conquest of Canaan. But that way to Canaan had been a very difficult journey. Israel had experienced many trying, many terrible times along the way. And to be fair about it, it was mostly due to their disobedience to God. But nevertheless, it was becoming very hard for them to finally see a positive outcome to all of these years that they'd been wondering. Were they actually going to reach the promised land? Well, in the fourth verse of Numbers 21, it says the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And because of that discouragement, they developed an attitude. Their, their attitude was that the destination is too far away for us. The length of the journey, the hardships that they'd gone through, uh, all of that had become a great discouragement to the people. So it was an attitude of discouragement. And as you look at that word discouraged in verse number 4, it really doesn't actually convey the full meaning of what was going on in their minds because this is a word, a Hebrew word, that also means that they had become very short-tempered. It means that they had become impatient with how long that it was taking them to get to the promised land. Almost 40 years had gone by. And they were at the point that they really didn't know if they were any closer to the destination than when they first began. Forty years. That's a long time to traverse just a a very short space of, of land to go over. Just a very short distance. And actually, it was an impossible time for them to spend wandering in the wilderness. And that shows that it was God who kept them there. He blocked the way to Canaan. And that's because they were stubborn and they were difficult. They were impatient with the leadership of Moses. And consequently, they became short-tempered and impatient with God himself. And so that soured attitude caused them to murmur and to complain, as they had so many times before in this journey. Now, I'd like you to notice first their impatience, and their impatience because of the detour. The Israelites were actually on a detour around the land of Edom when this incident occurred. Verse number 4 tells us that they went by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. Now earlier, Edom had refused for Israel to pass through their country. And so instead, they had to take a a southerly route, one that led them through some very difficult terrain. And it was the long way around. The short way would have been to go through Edom. But this was the long way around. And taking the long way simply became too long for for their patience. There was a much easier way to go. And the easier way was to take that path that led them through Edom. Well, that was a trial, though, that God had given them, a way to test them when he said that I want you to take the hard way, the most difficult way, not the short way. And in this journey that you and I are making towards heaven, sometimes our patience is greatly tried Whenever we try to travel the route that God has chosen for our lives, we would much rather choose a way that's easy for us. We'd much rather go another way that might lead us into some places where we really ought not to be. We want a shortcut to go where God wants us to go. And when we take the shortcuts, ultimately there are places that will often ruin our testimony and also ruin our influence for God. Now, if God had allowed Israel to go through Edom, who knows how many distractions they would have found there. And we do know that they were prone to mix and mingle with heathen people, and they committed great sins because of that. And so we don't know. If if God had allowed them to go through Edom, uh, their progress might have been impeded even more, even in a greater way. Uh, it, It might have taken even much longer to reach the land of Canaan if God said you could go the short way. And how many Christians have you known that would rather take a shortcut to success by taking a job that God doesn't want them to have, a job that may lead them out of the service of the Lord or move to a place where God doesn't want them to be, to take them out of the place where God put them where they can serve him and be continually in his service, but they've decided to take that shortcut. They want their success, they want what the world has or whatever it might be, and they've decided we're not going to go God's way, we're going to go our own way and they end up with a testimony and a life that's ruined for christ a life that they could have been in a good church where they could have worshipped the lord and learned from him but instead they find themselves in a place where god doesn't want them to be and so they become impatient but we see an example of the patience of christ when the scriptures tell us that he took the long way to the cross rather than the shortcut of satan talked a little bit about this in the message this morning, that in the temptation, Satan promised him that he could have the kingdoms of the world. He said, you can have it right now. Just take it all now. But Christ was going to assume his rightful place of the king of his kingdom without taking the shortcuts of Satan's promises. So Christ did it the hard way by obeying the Father and enduring, not avoiding the cross. Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds." That word endured in both of those verses comes from the same Greek word that's translated as patient in Romans 12.12 12, where it says be patient in tribulation and also in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20 where it speaks of patiently enduring suffering. And so we can actually see the cross in this story through the patience that should have led Israel to endure the difficulties of their journey. Well, the next thing that we see is impatience because of deprivations. Traveling the southerly route around to Edom to get to Canaan meant that the Israelites would not have the abundance of pasture for their animals or places for themselves. They wouldn't have the same watering places for them or their animals. They wouldn't have the same variety of food that they would have if they decided to go through Edom. So they wouldn't have all the comforts that they would normally have. Now, going to the south, taking that other route, was not going to be a luxury trip. I mean, that that would mean suffering. It meant they would have to do without. But Israel was impatient with that, and they were looking for the promised land, and they were just simply unwilling to endure and to be deprived of what others have as they made this journey. And isn't that the same problem that we often see with God's people? That we become impatient with God when we see others that are doing so much better than we are doing. And we become impatient because we believe that we're not actually getting everything that we deserve. And that discrepancy between what we have and what we expect fuels those thoughts of deprivation. And so we feel deprived without really understanding and acknowledging that God is actually supplying all of our daily needs. And that's what He's promised that He would do for us. You might not have all that you want right now, but God certainly does promise that His faithful children are going to have all that they need. Oh, you think about the sacrifices that are made by missionaries around the world. Some of them labor under extreme conditions. Some of them are Americans that have chosen to give up all of the creature comforts that we enjoy in order to go to some of the poorest parts of the globe to preach to people the gospel of Christ. And when they do that, they become deprived of what we have. But that deprivation doesn't make them become impatient. They're looking for something better. They're seeking something. Uh, they're looking for that eternal reward that comes in heaven that's never going to pass away. And once again, we see the example of the Savior in this. We can see Him in the story because the Scriptures tell us that He left the glories of heaven. As that song says, He, he left the splendor of heaven knowing His destiny. Well, Jesus was equal to God because He was God and yet he chose not to hold on to all of that adulation that he had in heaven, but rather he chose to come to the earth, to be fashioned as a man, and then to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He was deprived. Matthew 18:20. Jesus said, "...the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head." Don't talk about being a deprived Christian. We've not endured anything that the Savior did not endure. But yet we see that Jesus never complained about it. He never talked about how hard the way was for him. In that passage of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul said, We should not murmur as they murmured. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 7 and 8, he wrote, For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content, but nevertheless we 're not content. we murmur, and murmuring, the Bible says, is the way of destruction. First Corinthians 10:10, 10, 10, Paul goes on, he says, "Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer." Well, Jesus was not impatient because of deprivation. The way to the cross was hard. Every step of his journey, as we spoke this morning, every part of it was filled with pain and suffering and heartache. And likewise, he tells us that our way to heaven will often be difficult. And of course, we, we want better things for our families. Uh, we, we want them to enjoy more of the world's goods, whatever pleasures that might be. And we think that we should have them. And when we don't, we become envious of others. But we just simply have to ask, which is better? Is it, is it better to labor where God puts you? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so, we see in the passage the difficulty of the way to heaven. Now next, I want you to notice the destruction in the way to hell. Israel was a complaining people, and one thing that they were mistaken about was their own culpability for the condition that they were in. Now you would have to ask, why do they always continue in this pattern that they're in? Why are they always murmuring when they find out that every time that they do, God chastises them, there's some trial that they go through, something bad happens when they do this, so why do they keep on in those same sins? And I believe the answer to that is what many people still experience today, that most people, the world's people, don't see themselves as sinners, and consequently they don't believe that they're deserving of hell. Now the reason that Paul spent so much time and space in the first part of Romans dealing with the condition of sin and talking about the guilt of man is because that the natural man remains unconvinced that he's a sinner. And if he ever does come to the place or he will say that he is a sinner, that he's not convinced that his sins actually are worthy of his destruction in hell. And so Israel must have thought that complaining against God and pushing him, uh, trying to push him into a corner was all right for them to do. That was a just thing for them to do. But there is none of us that has a right to challenge God. Every one of us is a sinner justly deserving of the wrath of God. Now I want you to notice first concerning the destruction of the way to hell is that man is inflicted with a curse. Ezekiel records God's words in Ezekiel 18.4. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also is the soul. So also the son, uh, soul of the Son is mine. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now in our text in verse 6 of Numbers, it said, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. So God sent a curse ...on the children of Israel. And that curse is typical of the curse that he's placed upon all of mankind. That figures into this story. Now everyone, of course, is aware of the other famous snake story that's in the Bible. That's the one with Adam and Eve, where the serpent beguiled Adam and Eve... ...and by Adam's action, all men of all time have become become inflicted with a curse... So fiery serpents came upon this people because God put a curse on them. They were bitten and they died. Paul said that the sting of death is sin. And he said all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we are inflicted with this curse of sin. And the result of that curse is death and condemnation to the everlasting fires of hell. And every man is inflicted with that curse, and so that means that every day that every person lives who doesn't know Jesus Christ is living under the wrath of God. Then secondly, man is impaired without competence. And when those snakes bit these Israelites, they were helpless to provide a cure. Well, there they were out in the desert. They had no such thing as anti-venin. And I think if they did possess some kind of Remedies for snake bites that they had none for this particular snake. Maybe they could cure other snake bites, but there was no cure for this one. This was a very special snake. It was a fiery serpent. And it was an unusual snake because it probably was not a snake that just crawled on the ground. Now that kind of snake you might be able to avoid. But listen to this very strange verse that we read in Isaiah 14... It says, Rejoice not, thou whole Palestina, because the rod of him that smote thee is broken. For out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery, flying serpent. I wish I had time to talk some more about Isaiah 14, because there's some interesting parallels in the passage. But for now, God sent them fiery serpents, and these were different because most likely these serpents could also fly. And so he prepared these special snakes, and they could fly in like a bomber and head straight for a person and bite him. And that kind of reminds us of what we read in Revelation about demon-flying locusts with the sting of scorpions in their tails. The people had no way to avoid these flying, fiery serpents, and they were totally incapable of preserving their lives against the snakes. And that's the same way that it is with a man who's been inflicted with the curse of sin. He's impaired. He's rendered incapable. He doesn't have any competence to help himself. I mean, how many times have we discussed the fundamental problem, the fundamental spiritual problem that the Bible says that every person has, the Bible calls it being dead in trespasses and sin. And I've never seen a dead man that could do anything. I've never seen a dead man that was able to help himself. Oh, I've been to funerals where people cry at the funeral and they surely do wish that the person that's in that casket could get up from that place and walk out, but they can't. I've never seen that happen and neither has anybody else. I remember when I first became pastor of the church, there were some leftover tracts that were being used for visitation. And the tract had a a picture of a man that was drowning And someone was throwing him a life preserver. And printed on the side of the life preserver was the word salvation. And that man was desperately trying to grab this life preserver. Well, that makes a nice picture. But when we talk about such things, we need to speak biblically. And biblically, that's a picture that's inaccurate. It would be better to see that man sunk down to the bottom of the ocean and lying on the seafloor. Because that's what the Bible means when it says that a person is dead in his sins. He has no power to get up. He has no power to grab anything. Now the better picture is the biblical one in which we find the shepherd who goes out and seeks the lost sheep. And when he finds that sheep, he picks it up and he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he brings the sheep home with him. The sheep can't find his way. And so he needs a shepherd to come and look for him. And you'll find that picture right in the pages of the Bible. A man doesn't grab a life preserver. The Holy Spirit of God must touch him and bring him to life because man is impaired and can't do anything about his lost condition. So we see these people demonstrate the destruction and the way to hell. But then there's another thing that we need to see a final thing that we need to see from the story and that's the cure affected that the cure changes everything it removes the destruction of hell and instead it shows us thirdly the delight in the way of healing now let's go to our text verses again and read verses 8 and 9 and the lord said unto moses make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it, shall live And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now the people complained. That brought a curse on them. The sin was their own. They provoked God. But what we see here is mercy and grace. The God provided a way to heal their wounds. Two considerations that I'd like to make concerning the healing and that'll help us to answer the questions of why this particular type, why a serpent? Now you'll notice that first in the way of healing that we find the plan of salvation. The cure for these people is a great picture of the gospel of Christ. And to prove that it is a picture of the gospel, we don't need to look any further than the other text that we read in the opening remarks of the sermon. Because Jesus told us very plainly when he was speaking to Nicodemus that Numbers twenty one and the serpent on the pole represent his plan of salvation. We see it right here in John three, fourteen through seventeen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That's the plan of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are many ways that this healing represents the plan of salvation. Let me just deal with a few of those with you tonight. As we finish here, we'll go rather quickly... The first is the source of the plan. The source of this great cure for Israel was God. God's the one that thought of this. Moses didn't sit down with the princes of Israel to try to figure out a way that he could help people that had been bitten by these snakes. It was God who told them exactly what they must do. And you're very much aware that there are many people out there that are trying to figure out a way that they can get to heaven. And they've come up with a plan. they come up with their own plan. And always that plan involves the way that's best for them. They have a plan that lowers the standards to something that they can meet or that they can exceed. I mean, after all, why would anybody want to devise a plan that they couldn't actually manage? But this is a plan... That God is the source of, He's the plan, he, 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 He's the source of the plan, and He never consulted with any man to see what He thought about it. This was a plan that was made before there were any men to consult. And do you know when God made this plan? It was before sin ever entered into the world. In fact, it was before the world was even created. Revelation thirteen eight says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him, That is, that's talking about the Antichrist during the time of tribulation. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And so in the eyes of the timeless God, Jesus was slain before time began. And that surely shows us that man could have no part of it. And then next, concerning the plan of salvation, we note the strangeness of the plan. This is a very strange plan for curing snakebite. Neither doctors in Moses' day nor any doctor in our day would say this is anything other than a very strange plan for healing people from snakebites. I mean, who would ever think of this? Put an image of a fiery serpent out on a pole and look at that and you're going to be healed. But that's exactly what the world thinks about God's way of salvation. Didn't Paul say this? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. He also wrote, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. This is what, God, what people always say. God's way is nothing but foolishness. They think they have a superior intellect. They know more than God. And God's way is foolishness. But you know it doesn't make any difference how men view, men view it. God's plan works. His plan works. And you could criticize the plan that he gave Moses all you want, but it worked. They looked to the serpent that was on the pole and they were healed of their snake bites. And the same thing happens when a person looks to Jesus Christ. You can think it's crazy all you want, but it works. And it's the only only plan that will work. Then we note the sufficiency of the plan. The cure that's given by God was sufficient to cure anyone who'd been bitten by a snake. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And do you know that there is no one who looks to Christ who is refused? Jesus saves all comers. Romans 10:13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I hope that nobody, especially in here, would ever accuse me of preaching anything less than what the Bible says. I believe this with all of my heart, that anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. And the cross of Christ is sufficient to save anyone that looks to him for the healing from sin. Then fourthly is the singularity of the plan. God didn't say, well, Moses, I have a smorgasbord of ways for people to be healed from snake bites. I'm just like Obamacare. You just choose the plan that you want out of the list of options. No, God gave Moses one way. He said, put the serpent high on a pole so that everyone that looks may live. But how many times have you heard people say, well, I don't see any difference in religions. We're all working for the same place after all, aren't we? We're all going to the same place. And I've heard that so many times it makes me gag. I get letters all the time from the ministerial associations and I don't go because we're not all working for the same place. And anyone that's not going God's way is going to a different place. So you need not come to me if you've got some, I don't care if you're Protestant, Catholic or whatever you are, you come with some kind of plan of baptism or you come with a plan of Mary or you come with a plan of sacraments. I'm not going with you. There's only one single plan of salvation. That's faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And if you've got that plan, we're okay. We can, we can have fellowship with one another. In Acts, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And God said in Isaiah 45, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is none else. Now, fifthly, is the simplicity of the plan. Cure is simple. All the stricken people had to do was look at the serpent that's on the pole. There aren't any rituals to go through. There's no money that has to exchange hands. You don't have to join an organization. All the person had to do was to look at the serpent. And folks, the way of salvation is simple. You don't have to worry about dressing up your own wounds. You don't have to worry about cleaning up yourself or anything else. You don't even have to worry about joining the church. So you don't have any rituals that you have to go through. All that you do is you look to Jesus Christ and you receive him by faith alone. But there are many religions that they want to complicate the plan of salvation. They have all the other things that they want to add to it. But God has made the plan easy enough that a little child can understand it. And nobody can change this fact that simple faith, that's all that God has ever required simple faith in jesus christ but as you know those of you that are in the fundamentals class how that god did all this that's not so simple at all is it oh we've learned that there's some very deep doctrines concerning the salvation of that we have in christ he tells us to have faith in him And there's a whole lot more to learn about what took place in the background to make all of this happen. That's a very difficult part, but you don't have to know all that part to be saved. Now, lastly, concerning the plan is the suddenness of the plan. Just as soon as an Israelite looked at the serpent of brass, the cure came. And it's a good thing that it was sudden because maybe some of you here, maybe you've been bitten by a snake. By a poisonous snake. I don't know. And you know the venom of a snake works suddenly. I was watching a program on television where it was describing a snake that if it bit you, in 13 seconds you were dead. Well, thank the Lord for this, that you don't have to wait even 13 seconds after you believe to be saved. Oh, no, salvation is instantaneous. You are saved instantly when you trust Christ. There's no waiting. You don't have a 10-day approval time like buying a gun and there are some people who think well it takes much longer than that because you ask them well do you know if you're going to heaven and they say well i'm going to have to wait till i die to find out well you don't have to wait till you die you wait till you die you waited too long Oh, Jesus said this in John 5.24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that sounds to me like it happens immediately, instantaneously. It happens at the moment that you believe. Jesus says when that happens, you pass from death into life. And there's no waiting period. And not only is there no waiting period. He said you're going to know when the cure has worked. This is what First John 5.13 says. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You don't have to wait until you die. You can know right now that the cure actually works. Now, the plan of salvation is a tremendous plan, and there's great delight in the healing. Now, lastly, this point, and then we'll be ready to take the supper. In this story, of The Serpent on the Pole, we see the plan of salvation, but we also see the person of the Savior. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Two things to point out quickly, and we're done. The question that started all of this, is why a serpent? And I waited till the end to give the answer to that. Why a serpent? Well, first of all, because of the characteristics of Christ. This is the first key to it. The serpent of brass was made like a fiery serpent. It was molded into the image of a fiery serpent. Now, importantly, Christ's characteristics are similar to the characteristics of man, but they're also, importantly, dissimilar. Now, first of all, they're similar. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17, tells us, "...for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people." Those verses tell us that Jesus was made like sinful man. And the reason was that he might experience all that men experience and that he would earn righteousness by a perfect life that he could impute to us by our faith. Now in that way, Jesus is similar to man. He came in the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And that serpent of brass represents Christ who was made in the likeness of a fiery serpent and those serpents represent men. Yet, there we see, of course, that Jesus was similar but he's also dissimilar because those fiery serpents were full of poison. But the serpent of brass was harmless. There was no poison in it. And so... Christ was made in the likeness of men but there was no sin in him. He was born of a virgin there was no harm in him. There was no sin that nature that was passed on to him and that's why Jesus was able to be the perfect man and a perfect sacrifice and a perfect savior who could die in our place. And so the characteristics of Christ that's one reason why Jesus is like the serpent of brass. But then there's another very important reason, and this is the curse on Christ. In order to save us, Christ had to be made a curse for us. That is, he had to take our place as a sinner. Now in Galatians 3:13, it says, "Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us." Now in two ways, in two ways, the curse on Christ is seen in the serpent of brass. Well, the first would be that it's a serpent. And the serpent is a cursed creature. Remember what happened back in the Garden of Eden? God put a curse on the serpent. That's, that happened with the fall of man. And so Christ was cursed by bearing the sins of man. And then the second way that Christ is seen in this curse is by putting the serpent on a pole. And that pole represents the cross of Christ. And when that last part of Galatians that I didn't read it said for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree in second Corinthians 5.21 Paul said for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and so being put on the pole represents the curse as Paul explains in in both of these scriptures that Christ was himself made a curse for us And so that serpent was put on the pole, it had to be lifted up, and that pole was put into the ground. And that's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus had to be done. That the Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus must be nailed to that cross, and then lifted up for the sins of man. And thank God that Jesus was willing to do that. And so he becomes... This, this unusual picture of the cross in Numbers 21 points us directly to Jesus Christ being a curse and dying for man on the cross, a cursed place. So we thank the Lord that he was willing to do that for us. So there's just an unusual picture in the story of the fiery serpents in Numbers 21. But now we come to a picture that's much more familiar to us. and We're not talking about crucifixes and Not images of Jesus hanging on a cross, but we have another picture that Jesus said, This is the one that I want you to use to remember my death. And that's the picture of the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, he also told us that what we must do is to approach the supper cautiously. There has to be true faith in our hearts. We have to know Christ. We have to know that we've been made worthy by faith in Him to partake. And so we need to come to the supper with our sins confessed, with nothing in our hearts that would hinder our fellowship with God. So it's written in 1 Corinthians 11:28 and 29, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now what we never want to happen is to have people that come into the congregation to partake of the supper, and they have things in their heart that are not right with God. I think that a curse can be placed upon us because of such things we see it happening even to the church in Corinth that Paul was writing to here. He said, because of some of your practices, some of you sleep. And he meant by that, some of you have died because of it. I don't know if God would strike anybody in here dead because you had an ungrateful heart that came before him to suffer, and I don't want to find out. So what we'll do is we'll take a moment for all of us, a silent moment of prayer for all of us to confess our sins to the Lord. So would you take just a moment, just a moment of silence to talk with the Lord. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke, Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California.